Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Those are strange words coming out of my mouth. The book of Hebrews. I have never preached through the book of Hebrews, just as I have never preached through the book of Revelation. (laughs) And the reason is because Hebrews is pretty intense, is it not? It takes a lot of Old Testament knowledge to work your way through the book of Hebrews, if you're going to have even a general understanding of what is going to be communicated. Now, the first part of the book is actually easier because basically the writer of Hebrews, and I spent some time um, at the conference last week, listening to guys argue over who wrote the book of Hebrews. (laughs) And so, that was interesting. But uh, the writer of Hebrews, that's why I always just try to say the writer of Hebrews, um, spent the first part of this epistle uh, using an illustration from the children of Israel to make application for the saints that he was writing to. So our text is found here in Hebrews 4, but we're, so before we return to the book of Galatians, I have one more topic that I want to address here this morning, which is really kind of like a prequel to some thoughts being expressed in previous sermons, and is following up in relation to last week's sermon, but actually it should have went before last week's sermon, but the timing just wasn't right to do that. And so that's why You know, when movie producers think of another idea, then they just call it a prequel, right? It should have came first, but they didn't think of it till later. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we should have did a movie on that. And so then they just put it as a prequel. So it should have went first. And so that's kind of the case here this morning. Um, The writer of Hebrews here is concerned about true faith and those who profess living faith. Which is what? Living faith. That is faith unto obedience. That's what living faith is. Living out faith. It's alive. It's not just a theory. It is an action. It is both a belief and practice. It's a profession and a practice. And so this is the common theme of the apostles in many regards, but it is one that is scoffed at today. This whole idea of faith unto repentance. I mean, we're doing everything that we can to try to litigate and actually negate, to soften, to water it down, to make it spongy. 
make it soft, cuddly, comfortable. So it's scoffed at today. In the last few weeks, I heard two Reformed Baptist brothers give terrible presentations of faith and good works. And I can say it was terrible because what they said was not condensed. It's not like it was just some statement that someone could take it and take it out of context. They were not words that were misspoken. Because we do that a lot too, right? I'm terrible at it. There's sometimes things come out of my mouth and Sonia tells me what I said later and it's like, that's not what I meant. But you never know. Or And they weren't just worded in a deficient manner. No, these were planned and scripted words to accuse another brother of being a heretic on this very subject. One man, right in the midst of his condemnation, quoted the other man in question, who was in turn quoting Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, which says of Jesus, though he were a son... Yet he learned obedience. Whoa, now there's a conversation right there. (laughs) But he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Whoa! So right after that quote, the man said that the man who quoted it (laughs) was wrong. And heretical for connecting obedience to faith. So, kind of interesting, right? But what did Jesus command? Well, here's a couple of examples in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. John 6.40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And in context of believing in the Son, Jesus said that you were supposed to take up your cross and follow him. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. In Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. See, our problem, and the problem that we are subjected to in our culture today. But one problem in those presentations was that the purpose of those podcasts, videos, whatever you want to call them, was to prove someone wrong, right? Because it's became the trendy thing to do. We hear one little word that we think is out of focus and it triggers us and we have to do these podcasts and video casts and all this kind of stuff 
because he may have connected works with faith. May have connected obedience with faith. Well, the problem with that is this. What used to take years, many long dissertations to explain what you mean, is now all in little sound bites. And you know, sound bites do not give meaning. Sound bites do not give knowledge. And there's no context in which to apply it. So you can take these little sound bites and you can apply them all over the place. See, in the old days, once you read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, or if you read John Gill's uh, Body of Divinity, by the time you got to the beginning, you had a lot of context (laughs) in which to understand what they meant. But in these little social media blurbs, there just isn't much to go on. So what used to take years and many long dissertations and expositional written works and church councils, it is now all concluded in one 30-minute podcast. And this first problem contains the additional problems. Not only must faith and works be defined but a whole host of other things systematically to have an understanding of the topic. So we became so reductionist to the point that most things are no longer helpful in our society anymore. Just, just, just think about how expanded the topic of conversion is in faith and repentance. Daniel Burgess, who lived from 1645 to 1713, wrote this. Christian holiness is an art of doing more than knowing God's will, remembering it, and temporarily pursuing to do it. It is a continual obedience to God's word and sacraments through repentant faith. So let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to you as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundations of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that we must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, He designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. 
For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. I want to focus your attention on verse 13, where it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of him to whom we must have to do, and whom we have to do in the King James. Here, in the New King James, to whom we must give account. Because the writer of this epistle is worried that New Testament professors of faith will turn from the faith, he calls upon them to fear in verse 1, to labor in verse verse 11, to hold fast their profession in verse 14, and to come boldly to the throne of grace in verse 16. In the context of all of this, the writer reveals that it is the word of God that is the standard and the power of faith, and therefore it is God with whom we have to do. It is God to whom we must give account. The reason why this is no longer at the forefront in people's minds and people's hearts and lips and ears and eyes is because... We are an unbelieving people, as we have been discussing in Sunday school. We live in a day of unbelief and skepticism, not only in our culture, but it is a day of unbelief in the church. We are a people without faith, and if something does not change, we may be a generation who, instead of entering into the rest for the people of God, are the people who seem to come short of it. John Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews 4.13, says concerning this verse, specifically the phrase there, to whom we must give account, that is, the God who deals with us, he says, or with whom we have a concern, and that therefore we ought not to trifle. In other words, we ought to take it seriously. We ought not trifle with him as with a mortal man, but that whenever his word is set before us, we ought to tremble, for nothing is hid from him. So the title of the sermon this morning is The God With Whom We Have to Do, meaning it is God that we are accountable to and in all things to whom we must answer. This is the very essence of true faith. This is the very essence of unbelief, of belief, excuse me. This is the essence of obedience. This is the essence of everything because it is God with whom we have to do. It's not with me. It's not with Devin. 
It's not with the church as a whole. It's not with our association. It's not with the universal church. It is God with whom we have to do. We always want to get sidetracked on all these other issues, not realizing that no, no, no. We're going to have to give an account before God. We're going to have to give an account to God. And if we would keep this in mind, it would help us to keep faith and obedience properly connected. Because our flesh would like to deceive us into thinking that they are not. That they are completely disassociated. In other words, I can have one and not the other. See, that's the danger of disassociation. And so what we have on one side are two ditches. But the ditches are basically this, that you can have one without the other. Well, I like this smorgasbord idea of Christianity, and I think I'll just take a little bit of faith over here. Just sprinkle a little bit of faith on it, and I'm good. I, you know, that obedience stuff, that, that, that's, that's for other people. That, that's just really not my wheelhouse. That's, that's not for me. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a little bit of this faith stuff. No. It's both. To disassociate the two is faithlessness. That's what the writer of Hebrews is uh, that's the point he is making. Notice all throughout this language with the writer of Hebrews. Unbelief and obedience are used interchangeably. They could not enter in because of unbelief. They could not enter in because of disobedience. They're intertwined and connected. Obviously, they're distinct. They're two different things, but they're part of the same unit. But we like to disconnect obedience from faith by blaming leaders like when the children of Israel blamed Moses for taking them out of the wild, taking them out of Egypt into the wilderness to die. And yet why were they so long in the wilderness? Because of their sin of unbelief and disobedience. We like to disconnect obedience from faith by blaming circumstances. Yeah, we don't even know what's happened to this Moses. Therefore, since we don't know what happened to Moses, let's commit idolatry and fornication. That sounds like a good idea. You see, it wasn't their circumstances. It was their sin of unbelief and disobedience. We like to disconnect obedience from faith by blaming our enemies. There's giants in the land. Oh, what are we going to do? We can't do anything about it. Can't do anything. Just let it all go to hell in a handbasket. The enemies are too big. They're giants. Giants in the land. But why did they not take possession of the land? Was it because of the giants in the land? Or was it because of their sin of unbelief and disobedience? You see, every faithless act of disobedience is a denial that it is God with whom we have to do. That it is God to whom we must give an account. 
Because it is God with whom we have to do, notice what the writer says in verse 1, let us fear. Let us therefore fear. Now, there are things attached to this fear. Last day promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. According to Derek Thomas, writing in The Atlantic, he says, The hottest labor narrative right now is that everybody's quiet quitting. Anyone seen this on the news? Anyone seen quiet quitting? You know what I'm talking about? He continues on, starting this summer, last summer, popular videos on TikTok with millions of views have used the term to refer to the art of having a job without letting it take over your life, end of quote. Investopedia says this, quiet quitting refers to doing the minimum requirements of one's job and putting in no more time, effort, or enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. Is that crazy or what? It is the aspirations. Our culture now, we're aspiring to aim high and to go where no man has gone before by being second rate, inferior, uninspired, undistinguished. And instead of striving for excellence and exceptionalism, mediocrity. But the crazy thing, it's really not new. It's not a new thing. It is as old as sin, discontent, laziness, dishonesty, autonomy, individualism, disrespect, anarchy. Thank you, TikTok, for bringing it to our attention again, but it's not new. Now, there's a lot of things that could be said in relation to that. But we're not going to take the time to go into it. It is a real thing. But it's not a good thing, whether it's the old version of it or the new version of it. It doesn't matter if it's the version that's came out of TikTok or the version that came out of discontentment through whispering, backbiting. This is... However, although it is old, it has gotten worse in our society. And it is fairly simple to prove that it has gotten worse because everyone instinctively knows the answer, that it is true that these things have become worse. And you can discover this by asking this question. Would you rather have someone from the World War II generation... Or one of the young postmodern individuals working for you. If you were the boss and you needed workers, would you rather have someone from the World War II mindset or someone from the postmodern mindset? And there's your answer. 
But a lot of this angst and speculation is actually symptoms of other problems, and one which is the Internet. Not that the Internet is, in its essence, evil. It's just a tool, but the sinful and evil use of it is creating and expounding these problems to greater heights. And it's also creating a situation where we are finding ourselves hamstrung and being able to deal with these issues. But quiet quitting is not a new thing, and it simply reveals other real problems, which includes the acceptance of failure or the rejection of perfection. Both are evil. And that's, that's not a common thought today. So what I told you, young people, was a very radical thing, a very controversial thing. It ranks up there with gender fluidity, what I just told you, that there actually should be fear of failure and that there absolutely should be pursuit of perfection. That is not believed in our culture and our society anymore. It's not even believed in the church. It's hard to get people lost if you don't have a standard of perfection. But we don't believe in that anymore. We don't believe in the idea of doing your best, regardless of salary, prestige, title, or status. And so the secular world is finally caught up to the church because we're the ones who cast off perfect standards and the desire to strive for them. And so we have to make a disclaimer. You know, we have to say no one is perfect. We have to say that, you know, we're all going to fail. But what I'm saying is that does not negate the standard. Of course, everyone is going to fail, but we must instill the desire to overcome that we do not apply for a permanent residence in failure. That's not what salvation is. We think salvation is just an excuse so we can take up permanent residence in failure. Well, we're all sinners. You know, adultery fornication, theft, murder, rape. We're we're just all sinners. Right? That's not producing anything good today. Yes, there's going to be sin. There's going to be failure. But the man who falls seven times and rises up again is not the failure, but the man who will not get back up. And yet we are instilling permanent failure in society because professing Christians have been quiet quitting for a long time, and now it is resulting in the great resignation of Christianity that the media is calling deconstruction. But the inspired writer of Hebrews is concerned about Christians coming short, quiet quitting, coming short of the promised rest. This coming short is also conveyed by the writer of Hebrews as holding fast, 
the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. It's defined as hardening your hearts or as erring in your hearts and not knowing the word of the Lord, as having an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, as being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as not holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, as the word that is heard not being mixed with faith among those who hear it, as falling short because of disobedience. Yes, there is a promised land, a land of rest and peace, but it is for those who overcome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, the Apostle John says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then in Revelation 3, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. These are the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter two and three. The things that we are to follow him in and to be obedient in. And then in Revelation 21, it says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Yes, there remains a rest for the people of God, but it is for them who fear, knowing it is God with whom we have to do. Why is it for those who fear God? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who lack fear... Hear the word, but it is not received in faith, but it is rejected in apathy and indifference, thinking God will look past our unbelief and God will look past our disobedience. It's because we don't believe that it is God with whom we have to do. There is to be a fear of failure, and we are to fear that coming short we are to fear unbelief notice in verse number two for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them but the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it see these are some things we're supposed to fear and because of this in verse number six the writer says, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. One of the interesting things about the ministry of Jesus Christ is in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 58, where it says of his mighty works not being evident in Galilee, and it says this, now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That needs to be inscribed on the American church doors today. 
Right as we enter in, we should have to walk in under that verse. Now, he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. That might be the epitaph that is put on the tombstone of American Christianity. Unbelief or faithlessness should be a fearful thing to us. We should live like the father of the young boy who healed, who Jesus healed in Mark chapter 9, who cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the kind of fear of failure, the kind of fear of coming short, the kind of fear of unbelief that we should have. That we should exercise the belief that we have and cry out to God for more faith. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We should be like the disciples in Luke chapter 17 who said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. I've actually heard it preached that we should not do that. Amazing. Interesting. Increase our faith. That should be one of our prayers. You see, unbelief is something we are commanded to fear. And we are told to fear it even in Romans chapter 11. Remember how Paul's talking about the Gentiles being grafted in? Then he uses the example of the Jews who were cut off. And then what does he tell the Gentiles? Don't be proud. Don't be boastful. Because God can cut you off too. See, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. And then we're to fear God's wrath in verse number three. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as, I, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall enter into my rest. This is one of the things about communion. In receiving communion, one of the things that ought to be uh, a disposition in our reception to it and ought to be preliminary before we come to it is in relation to it is God with whom we have to do. Because we're either eating and drinking Life or death to ourselves. We are warned. In Hebrews 10, we're warned in Hebrews chapter 12 about God's chastisement, God's judgment. So we are to hear, not harden. We're not to harden our hearts as in the day of the rebellion, but we're to hear his voice. And this Hearing is with the understanding that, yes, there is a rest for the people of God. And those people are those who possess a living faith. A pastor by the name of, a preacher by the name of John Maynard wrote this. If you please yourselves in your own conceits and vain imaginations that are contrary to the wisdom of Christ believing that it is an easy thing to go to heaven and that you hope to be saved in the end, 
Although you are carried with the stream of the world, the tide of your lusts, the wind of Satan's suggestions, and applause of the multitude, assure yourselves that you are rebels against Christ and are on the path to eternal destruction. And then notice in verse 11, because it is God with whom we have to do, let us labor. It's something that has to be said nowadays. That you're supposed to do something. Supposed to work. Christianity is not a one-way ticket to paradise. There's labor. Therefore, because there's some that seem to come short of it, not only let us fear, but let us labor. Let us labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And then notice that verse 12 goes directly into the famous passage about the word of God. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, there's this call to labor. Most people do not associate labor with Christianity, but being a Christian is work. We refer to the means of grace, which are Things that are instruments to work in us, to be used to work in us. Primarily the word, sacraments, and prayer. There's labor involved. There's work involved. We are not saved by works. But salvation is a result of work. They're the works of God and the Father ordaining and covenanting redemption's plan. There are the works of God the Son in righteousness and atonement. There are the works of God the Spirit in the effectual work of salvation in sinners. But God works through means, and there is work that takes place in the real world. There is evangelistic work by the church and ministers and members. And there is work by the recipients of grace using the means that God has ordained for our salvation. It is both spiritual and physical labor. And the Bible has a lot to say about labor, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Paul's all the time talking and praising those who have labored for the gospel and have labored with him. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples that the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers, because there's work that has to be done. It doesn't happen in an empty space, in a void, in a vacuum. 
There's work that has to be done, which is why Paul would say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Yes, there remains a rest for the people of God, but it is for them who labor, knowing it is God with whom we have to do. And then in verse 14, we're to hold fast to our profession. Because it is God with whom we have to do, let us hold fast our confession. And then the fourth thing, because it is God with whom we have to do, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You say, throughout the midst of the first three, it's like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm falling short of that. Notice the fourth one. Therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. In all of your falling short of it. In all of your imperfections. In all of your shortcomings. Come to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy. And find grace to help us in our deficiencies. Yes, there remains a rest for the people of God, but it is for them who come boldly, knowing it is God with whom we have to do. Because it is God with whom we have to do. And because God, at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken in these last days to us by his Son, as he said to the Son, who had purged our sins, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Father says to him, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 he says, Therefore, holy brethren, let us hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end and that we would not have an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of us would be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin hearing those words today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of us seem to come short of it. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same manner of disobedience. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jonathan Dickinson wrote, Christianity consists not merely in speculation but in practice. We must not only give our assent to the truth of the gospel but give up our hearts to Christ. The faith which he requires is not a slight superficial belief that he is the redeemer of mankind. 
but such a faith as will form us into subjection and obedience to himself. The kind of faith that enters because it is faith. You see, they didn't enter because of unbelief. In other words, they didn't have faith. It wasn't because they didn't do the works. They didn't do the works because they didn't have faith. Faith will enter because faith believes. Father, we pray that you would help us to come boldly before your throne of grace because we are in desperate need of grace, of your kindness, your forgiveness, your mercy. And so, Father, we ask that you would grant unto us that which we need here this morning. Whatever it is, with each person here this morning, whatever their need is, spiritually and physically, we pray that you would give them and grant them what is needed so that they might enter into your rest. And we ask this in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.